Just as tides and temperatures impact the ocean, it's the things we don't see that make the biggest impact on maritime trade compliance. Sea Searcher Advanced Risk and Compliance illuminates risk like a lighthouse in a storm, enabling you to save time and effort completing sanctions compliance checks, investigations, and monitoring vessels for illicit activity. Find out more at lloydslistintelligence.com. The Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. The fact that a small proportion of the defiantly dodgier end of shipping continue to risk it all in the pursuit of supplying sanctioned states with essential energy, arms and bulletproof limousines is well understood. There has always been an underbelly of murky maritime practice where a combination of rogue state security services and suitably financially motivated rule breakers are prepared to try their luck at skirting even the greyest areas of international trade laws. But what if I were to tell you that some reputable P&I clubs, classification societies, even European flag states, were providing services to ships that are transporting energy commodities from Iran, Venezuela and North Korea? Or that while a United Nations expert panel has identified 57 ships engaged in North Korean shipping, only 14 of them have been formally identified and sanctioned? Or how about the fact that the International Maritime Organization has been deceived into providing false identification numbers for vessels that don't exist. Welcome to the increasingly sophisticated world of subterfuge shipping, where assessing risk is now a priority for even the cleanest of good corporate citizens. Now, at Lloyd's List, we've been following the rise of a subterfuge fleet for the past two and a half years, ever since the US sanctioned Iran and Venezuelan oil and shipping in early 2019. Regular readers and clients of our data intelligence service, Lloyd's List Intelligence, will be only too aware of the common characteristics. With very few exceptions, all are elderly tankers that would have normally been sold for scrap by now. Instead, they've been bought by largely unknown companies since 2019 and deployed solely on these trades. The list that we've been following has expanded 20% in the last 12 months, And exports from Iran in particular have gained since the Biden administration was inaugurated. All 180 of these tankers are engaged in what US agencies describe as deceptive shipping practices that obfuscate the origin and destination of the cargo. This includes flag hopping, switching off their vessel tracking transponder or AIS, which is known as going dark ship-to-ship transfers and multiple ownership and name changes. They're also engaged in fraudulent and fake flagging, vessel identity laundering, vessel spoofing, and use fake marine insurers. Many flags have registered tankers in sanction-skirting trades. There's a prevalence of small African or Caribbean registries that require online applications only, and barely have any vessels above 5,000 deadweight tons in their fleet, let alone a very large crude carrier. That is where you will find the subterfuge fleet. There's also the evolution of falsely flagged vessels, vessels that claim to be flagged with a registry but actually aren't. Now, all of this is pretty well documented, at least for those reading Lloyd's List and the regular output from the UN's panel of experts pulling together intelligence from concerned government security agencies. But the risk for the shipping industry is evolving. As the scrutiny of the subterfuge fleet has intensified, So the tactics have rapidly evolved, and the evolution is posing a risk to the shipping, finance, and insurance entities 
struggling to keep up with compliance and due diligence. C4ADS, a Washington DC-based nonprofit that investigates how data impacts security and international conflicts, recently unveiled the results of an extensive investigation into how North Korea was using vessel identity fraud to bypass UN sanctions. I spoke to their lead analyst behind the report, Lauren Sung and Lucas Koo. Yes, I think these evasion tactics at sea are evolving. They're becoming increasingly sophisticated. Everything from uh, deliberately turning off AIS signal while conducting illicit activities, such as uh, illegal ship-to-ship transfers of oil, to doing things more on the network side, uh, for instance, by hiding beneficial ownership of ships by using shell companies uh, and secrecy jurisdiction uh, registrations. Um, And I think a major one that really uh, relates a lot also to our paper is um, vessel identity tampering. And uh, you've all heard of this before. This is when ships undergo physical modifications to appear on the surface, to look like a different vessel, um, or tampering with their AIS transponders to broadcast the identifiers of a different ship. Uh, So they would be appearing as a different ship digitally. All of this is being done to hide their true identities while they're engaging in nefarious activity. Now, much of what Lauren is outlining there is well known, but the emergence of a far more sophisticated trend has got industry security analysts worried. What the C4ADS report describes as vessel laundering is a novel evasion tactic that has managed to dupe several industry organisations in a process that has effectively undermined the credibility of the numbering system that uniquely identifies individual ships. Lauren here describes how the fraud works. The the goal here is about creating um, a much more comprehensive, legitimate seeming and paper trail backed false identity for a ship. And um, I would describe it roughly as a three-step process uh, where the goal is to provide the ship with a new registered digital and, and physical identity. So firstly, what happens is, you know, you get a ship that needs a new identity, maybe because it's been implicated in sanctions evasion. The ship's operator hides the ship's identity, original identity, through methods such as physical alterations and AIS manipulation. That ship basically sort of disappears off the radar. Um, And to make this simple, uh, I'm going to just give the ship a name, just call it ship A for now. the, then the operators are behind ship A in a, in a situation that is divorced of ship A itself will use fraudulent documents to create a situation where it appears like there is a ship that legitimately requires an IMO number being issued to it. So for instance, um, these operators might pretend that they have a newly built ship that is applying for an IMO number for the first time. From the IMO's perspective, nothing really seems odd about that because they get these requests all the time. So by using these false pretenses, the operators are defrauding the IMO into issuing an IMO number and an IMO registered identity for a ship, one that might not even exist, just exists on paper through fraudulent documents. But then this newly uh, issued identity and IMO number is subsequently adopted by ship A, the one that originally required a new identity, 
And um, by doing so, Ship A, which had a bad reputation because it was implicated in sanctions evasion or some other type of uh, illicit maritime activity, it gets this new clean um, identity that is uh, free of any reputational issues. So that's what's happening. But because it's a much more coordinated and orchestrated fraud than simply punching in a different IMO or MMSI number onto an AIS transponder, it's a lot harder to detect. It also has a much broader set of implications across the industry, not just sanctions evasion. C4ADS analyst Lucas Ku explains why. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's about uh, preserving the legitimacy of the uh, institutional norms. Um, so with vessel identity laundering, the, the issue is that these illicit networks are essentially defrauding the IMO to get an IMO registered number that they're not supposed to have. IMO the IMO number is supposed to be that single source of truth for maritime industry and all adjacent industries, so finance and insurance, to be able to determine whether a vessel is real or not. Does it actually exist? And so with vessel identity laundering, that kind of uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a chip in armor in, in some ways. Um, and therefore, what used to be the most reliable uh, way to uh, verify that a, ship, a ship's authenticity um, is now being called under question. And so um, that has a wide variety of implications that right? beyond just the sanctions evasion space, uh, for a lot of banks um, that are working with uh, ship owners and ship managers who are using their vessels as collateral to secure loans to operate in, say, the commodity uh, sector. Um, if there is now this possibility that the ships that are being insured are not actually the ships that they claim to be in, in quote-unquote official documentation, then that sort of introduces a, a new type of risk, a financial risk, that is not typically associated with the types of you know, maritime uh, or types of uh, identity tampering that Lauren described earlier. Um, so in which case, entire loans, massive loans, could be underwritten by uh, assets that don't actually exist or are probably less valuable than what they are claimed to be on on paper. Um, so the implications are widespread beyond just uh, shipping industry itself. Now, in terms of how whether it's easy to detect this, um, it's definitely difficult um, for sure. We did not, uh, you know, Lauren and I, we did not come from the shipping industry. We did not, our careers were not, uh, you know, focused on understanding necessarily, you know, the shipping industry and the ins and outs of the shipping industry, um, common practices and things like that. We kind of had to learn all of that in order to understand how uh, specific illicit networks, in this, in our case, North Korea, um, were exploiting uh, the shipping system to uh, evade and, and violate sanctions. And, and so it, a lot of it kind of has come from uh, this recognition that um, these guys are good and they have been evolving for quite a long time. And, uh, you know, given the extraordinary amount of pressure that's been placed in the shipping industry um, to sort of increase due diligence standards to detect illicit shipping, um, I think these illicit networks have also caught wind of that. And they are also at the same time adapting in here real time um, to these new countermeasures that have been put in place by industry and also by uh, governments and sanctions monitors as well. And so, um, you know, our role as analysts is to always 
try to stay one or two steps ahead of them. And uh, with Vessel Identity Laundering, that was definitely one that caught us by, by surprise. And I think we were not the only institutions that were also deceived by um, you know, this, this new tactic. So the tactics are evolving in response to the scrutiny now being deployed to counter the subterfuge activity. But what does this escalation mean for the industry? Lloyd's List's very own sanctions expert and market analyst Michelle Vizi Bockman picks up the story. The reason that these tactics are getting increasingly sophisticated is because there is more pressure on banks and marine service providers to do extensive due diligence checks. So what they're doing, especially when it comes to the IMO, is they're exploiting a regulatory gap in the amount of information that's required by a flag registry to put forward to the IMO in order to secure an, an IMO number. So they don't have all the necessary information to do proper checks. And now if you look back to some of the instances we've seen with, um, you know, a fake uh, marine insurer has been set up that has issued blue certificates, which sort of to a, which um, is given to a, a, a flag registry to say, look, we will cover liability and the flag registry has not checked properly and the marine insurer doesn't really exist. And so these are all regulatory shortcomings that these the subterfuge fleet has explored and exploited and they're going from, they're, they're sort of finding every new regulatory gap. Um, and I think this is what's happened with vessel identity laundering. As due diligence gets tighter, they're putting themselves in places where they can evade and not be identified or found out. So should the industry be worried? Attempts have been made to encourage ship owners to step up their compliance and due diligence, but is enough really being done to ensure that this increasingly sophisticated risk is managed on the industry side? I spoke to BIMCO's head of security and podcast regular, Jakob Larsen. Yes, I think the the risk is elevated, and uh, I mean, uh, we have we have received the feedback from from our members and from the industry that that the risk is uh, has increased, um, and and therefore BIMCO has developed AIS switch off clauses, uh, something that was required by U.S. authorities, uh, and we sort of operate, operationalized that uh, into uh, to some clauses that are now available in the BIMCO website for people to use, and and to the industry, the risk is really it's of course getting. Uh, caught up in this, uh, if if you charter your ship out, ship ship out to to someone who is who's involved in in, in nefarious activities, but also if if uh, for example a ship has in the past been involved and then all of a sudden is caught in a in a detention by authorities and so on, that also constitutes a, a risk, and that's why the AIS, AIS switch clo- uh, switch off clause is designed the way it is, uh, mm-hmm. basically to to um, to help. Uh, ship owners with that due diligence so that they um, they, they minimise that risk. Do, do you generally think that the industry is doing enough in terms of due diligence and compliance? Is it something that should be higher up the industry agenda, do you think? I think, uh, I mean, with this new clause and, and the increased focus we have, um, uh, I think the, the industry is, is doing uh, a lot. One can always discuss whether it's enough. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that to to uh, to the law enforcement authorities to to decide on. And uh, but but I think we we are doing quite a lot. But if you look at at the, the reports coming out now and and the apparent increase in activity, then there, it could indicate that there is a need to do more to ensure that uh, that international law is is upheld. upheld. Mm. 
I think what we should note at this point is that the burden of due diligence has not been even across the maritime sector. When it comes to the banks and the financial institutions, they now have burdens of KYC and due diligence responsibilities to be much more on the ball when it comes to these sanctions evaders. They might be upping their game, but not everybody has the same burdens imposed upon them. Here's Lauren Sung again picking up that thread. There are other industry stakeholders who do not have the same kind of burdens posed onto them. So maritime authorities, actually, who, if we think about it, are the ones who should be really leading the charge on um, on regulation. There just isn't quite as much that is driving them to step up their game across the board. So, you know, um, some countries may be incentivized to uh, tighten regulations, but others um, may not really think that way. If you are a flag of convenience registry, an open registry, let's say, um, and your goal is uh, gross tonnage, uh, you just want to have as much Uh, as many ships registered as possible, obviously you don't have the same sort of incentives in place to to practice the same level of of standards. So we see this kind of uh, unevenness uh, being exploited, I think, by by sanctions evaders and other illicit um, maritime actors who aren't necessarily just stepping up their game because the regulatory environment is tougher, but they're just trying to look for where the where the chips in the armor are, to, to use the term that Lucas said earlier, where would be the, the vulnerabilities that they can target? And in the case of vessel identity laundering, the vulnerability they're seeing is the IMO registration process. And the fact that, um, you know, despite some of these due diligence and compliance measures being in place uh, with the IMO and IHS market, um, when there is this general idea that a ship, one that hasn't had an IMO number before, can get issued an IMO number. um, And, you know, up until now, the IMO hasn't really had reasons to think that that would be a vector of exploitation, they're using this narrow gap to to get in there and say, well, um, as long as we can create this seemingly legitimate paper trail, they're not going to question that. So it is asking a lot of these maritime authorities who haven't necessarily up until now had the same pressures to deal with these issues. Now, I should point out here that the IMO Secretariat is updating its IMO legal committee about the C4ADS report's findings as part of the committee's work to address fraudulent practices in registering and flagging ships. The IMO are aware of the report. However, in order for it to be brought to the attention of the relevant IMO committee, it needs to go through a member state or a non-government organisation in a consultative status in order for it to be formally looked at by IMO member states. The point here being that the response from international authorities is necessarily a slow one. The subterfuge evasion tactics, however, remain pretty agile and are evolving all the time. But just back to that issue of the burden of due diligence being picked up somewhat sporadically by different industry participants, given the extensive reporting that Lloyd's List has performed in this area over the last two years, I think it's fair to say that not all stakeholders are equal when it comes to compliance, particularly when it comes to flag registries. Michelle Vesey-Bockman again. Well, I think not only are 
all flags not equal, but flags have different levels of engagement and interest in doing anything about this. So you've got the flag states on one, on, on one hand who are not playing their role in ensuring that sanctioned vessels are not trading with their flags. But then you look at port states as well. And I refer to the United Nations Panel of Experts report on North Korea, which was published publicly recently. And one of the things that really struck me there was that they repeatedly questioned China about satellite images of coal being loaded in their ports and then shipped to North Korea, to which China provided wholly inadequate responses. And so you have another layer of, of duplicity there, because even when you know it's happening and we've, the vessels are identified, you then get a blockage from one of the port states. And of course, it's no secret that all of the US sanctioned oil um, from Venezuela and Iran is going to China. So there's many layers and strands of all of this. There, and of course, this is probably one of the reasons why it's not playing out in the IMO as quickly and as um, openly as one would anticipate and expect. While the industry is in part struggling to keep up, it's notable that the regulatory regime is going through something of a fallow period. Despite a flurry of sanctions against shipping under the Trump regime, there have been few direct measures taken against subterfuge oil trades and fleets of tankers supporting them of late. When it comes to the unilateral US sanctions, their inconsistent and somewhat unpredictable application is, to some extent, the point. It makes for an effective foreign policy tool. The last significant blacklisting was a Liberia flag, VLCC, Amman Pride, owned by an Amani oil broker. It was blacklisted for breaching secondary sanctions on Iran. The timing was peculiar. Four weeks earlier, a seafarers union had resolved an abandoned vessel case involving the Amman Pride, and it was no longer trading. The move is viewed as being used to put pressure on Iran to return to the negotiating table in Vienna for talks about its nuclear program. The point being... These are a political set of tools. So far, it appears that the Biden approach to maritime sanctions still has the hallmarks of Trump's foreign policy modus operandi, singling out certain ships and companies with usually short-term blacklistings to promote broader compliance. All the while, these measures ignore the elephant in the room. Billions of dollars in energy commodities continue to be shipped via these 180-plus tankers, to China and Syria, the biggest customers for the heavily discounted oil. And this all means that significant compliance challenges remain for maritime service providers and ship owners worldwide. For more regular analysis of compliance risk in shipping, head directly to LoysList.com. And I would urge listeners to also head to LoysList Intelligence to check out our new and extremely useful advanced risk and compliance tool, she uses artificial intelligence to identify much of this illicit activity for risk and compliance procedures. For now, though, thank you for listening once again to the Lois List podcast. We'll be back with you next Friday. Have a good week. <laughs>